Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Elizabeth Carney, chair of the club's Business and Leadership Forum, and your host for today's program, which is entitled Capitalism Reconsidered, What Business Can Do to Lead the Change. We invite our audience at the club and on the internet to visit at commonwealthclub.org to learn about the many fine program events that are held here. Indeed, on Thursday, October 17th, we have a program and book signing in the evening entitled, What Makes Good Food? A topic all of us are interested in, with Mark Bittman and Anna LePay. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Joe Epstein, past chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, who will introduce our program speakers for today. Thank you, Elizabeth. Peter Georgescu's early life is fascinating. And I'm excited and I'm honored to give you a thumbnail sketch and an exciting backdrop to our speaker today. Peter was born in Bucharest, Romania on the eve of World War II. His father was the managing director of Exxon's oil field operations in Romania. But in 1947, Peter's young world turned upside down. His parents were in New York City on a business trip when the Iron Curtain descended. Peter's parents could not return to Romania, or they would have certainly been arrested or killed. Stranded in Romania, Peter and his older brother and grandfather were arrested and imprisoned in a work camp. Eight years later, his parents, still in the United States, refused an offer by Romanian diplomats to be a spy and instead went to the press. This caused an international incident. Their father obtained the help of President Dwight Eisenhower and Congresswoman Frances Payne Bolton of Ohio to finally get his son's release and passage to the United States. Against this intriguing backdrop, Peter went on to attend Phillips Exeter Academy. He obtained his BA from Princeton, where he graduated cum laude. And subsequently, he earned an MBA from Stanford in 1994. He became chairman and CEO of Young and Rubicam, serving in that position until 2000. And under Peter's guidance, Young and Rubicam went on an acquisition push, increasing ownership in public relations firms and advertising agencies across Africa, Asia, Europe, and Latin America. Y&R, as the company is frequently referred to, successfully transformed from a private to a publicly held company under Peter's leadership. Peter has written three books, The Source of Success, The Constant Choice, and his latest book, Capitalists Arise, which is the topic of today's discussion. And in recognition for his contributions to the marketing and advertising industry, Peter was inducted into the Advertising Hall of Fame. Peter Georgescu will be in conversation today with Bobby Silton, Bobby's the Managing Director of Shared Value Initiative and former Executive Vice President of Talent and Sustainability of Gap Incorporated. 
At the Shared Value Initiative, Ms. Silton heads a global community of leaders who find business solutions for societal challenges. The group works to build smarter models to address the changing needs of our communities, the environment, and business. So please welcome our guest speaker, Peter Georgescu, and our moderator, Bobby Silton. Thank you, Joe. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see all of you here today. And um, I couldn't be more delighted uh, to be sitting across from Peter Georgescu, someone who I have known for most of my career and have been a longtime admirer. Uh, so today, we're going to have a really important and timely conversation. Uh, the world has never been more prosperous and at the same time, the world has never been more unequal, with the top 10% of adults holding 85% of the global wealth. Corporations and capitalists will play a really important role in addressing this imbalance, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. So this book, Capitalists Arise, um, I want to share a little interesting story. So I came across this book earlier this year in May. I read a short piece on Peter and the book and ordered it right away. And I had just barely cracked it open and started reading it and was very intrigued by what I was reading that I got a call from my former boss at Levi Strauss and Company, um, the former CEO, Phil Marino, who is sitting here in the audience. And Phil said, have you ever heard of this book called Capitalists Arise? <laughs> and he said, and would you be interested in interviewing the author at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco? And of course, I thought that was kismet and that I had to say yes. And so here I am, and I couldn't be more pleased that he is here to share with all of you the insights and the findings that he had in doing the research for Capitalists Arise and really talk to us about how we can think about capitalism reconsidered. So, Peter, before we get into the book, uh, Joe talked a little bit about your very interesting uh, childhood, and I think it's worth digging into that a little bit more. The research uh, definitely says that, you know, as people, much of who we are is developed very early in our childhood, and I think your experiences before you became a young man have certainly influenced your view of your life, but it has also influenced your view of the world. And I think it had something to do with why this book means so much to you. So share with the audience a little bit more about your journey to getting here. Happy to do that, uh, Bobby. But before I do, if you would permit me to just say thank you for doing this. I'm really grateful to you. And uh, we've known each other for a bit, and she's an extraordinary person. And I'm just very privileged to have this conversation. I also want to thank Joe because Joe and Judy uh, were part of uh, the reason why we're here. And so grateful to you both. And Elizabeth, along the journey to put anything together, you slaved uh, labor to make it all happen. So thank you all to you. So now let me go back, I guess, mentally, uh, about 12,000 miles from here where, where I grew up. And I'm going to come back to the to a, a point that just occurred to me that I'm going to talk about the importance of education and the importance of early education. It just occurred to me, as, as you were saying, that in many ways, I too have received an early education. It, it wasn't planned. It wasn't exactly what I would recommend for most <laughs> young people. 
because I uh, started to uh, work, uh, you know, 10 hours a day at the age of 10 uh, of hard labor, cleaning sewers or digging holes for electric poles or working on a high tension wire is not exactly what most young people ought to do. But nevertheless, it had a profound impact on me. One of the things that I remember with clarity is uh, a fundamental principle of work matters, that there's something profoundly important for people to work for one's dignity and self-esteem. And as a young man, uh, one of the reasons that I, I think I can look back with, with objectivity and lack of any um, animosity to those days, because I've learned that people just are capable of doing some bad stuff, and they did that to my family. But one of the things that made me help develop and I think survive like a whole person, uh, not only physically but also emotionally, was that I put my all in my work. Believe it or not, there was a sense of pride. I wanted to convince my colleagues, they're all adults, these are not prisoners. We were the force to work alongside people who were doing their jobs. And I was committed to really try to prove to them that even though I was a kid, I could outwork them, or I tried to outproduce them. And I remember at that time, in order to, uh, to eat, you had to go to a store. There were various stores there that you had a ration card. Everybody, not just myself or my brother or my grandmother, but uh, ordinary people. And depending on the color of the card, the ration card that you had, you would get so many ounces of milk or bread or whatever. And I had the blue card. And that meant that I could get more, a few more ounces of bread, a few more ounces of milk. And that meant a lot to me. And so I learned throughout my life that hard work, wired to do your best, whatever it is that you do, uh, really mattered. And I learned also early on, and certainly the values of people, the importance of people in one's life, the appreciation that we're all here together. And by the way, all of you are here because somebody chose to reach out to you and help you at various points, critical points in your lives. And we're all here because others have helped us along the path. And that meant a great deal to, uh, certainly to me. Like uh, when the story that Joe talked about, uh, when this congresswoman from Ohio called my parents who had become American citizens by then and said, I'm gonna get you boys out of Romania. Now, she was a congresswoman from Ohio. My parents lived in New York City. What the heck did she do that for? There was nothing in her job description to say, that a, senator, that a congresswoman from Ohio, and by the way, she was a congresswoman, remember, this was 1980, uh, excuse me, 1953. And she was not only a congressperson, but she was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Congress in 1953. So you can imagine what kind of woman she was. She was a force. Fortunately, I got to know her pretty well. She was quite an amazing lady. But again, what motivated her to do that? She did it because she felt compassion, she felt caring, and because she could. So she did. 
It's an amazing thing. With the principal of Exeter Academy, who called my father, we arrived in April, and said, by the way, I'm going to keep a place for your young boy. And my father protested. He says, well, he doesn't speak a word of English, and he hadn't gone to school for four years. But he said, no, 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 wait. I read the story, but he learned other things there. So you just help your son learn English and come see me um, in August. <laughs> and so I watched a lot of I Love Lucy shows to <laughs> keep hearing <laughs> words. I think I didn't have to copy his, uh, his accent. I think that came naturally at the time. <laughs> but um, it all worked out. So we went, I went there, and he liked me. I don't remember the actual conversation that took place, how he figured it out that he liked me, but he did. And he said to me, look, if you, if you can pass your courses by the end of the year on your own without, no, without any consideration for your background, you get to stay. Otherwise, I'll find the right school for you. Is that OK? I had no clue what he was talking about. What do you mean another school? What's another school? This is a school, right? Anyway, so uh, on the way out the door, he said, by the way, he said, what class would you like to be in? And again, not understanding what I should have said, I said, the only thing that came to my mind was, how about boys my own age? So he threw up his hands. He said, what difference does it make? You're going to be a sophomore. So that's how I got to Exeter. But it worked out with a lot of help, with caring from people. Yes, I got teased plenty. I never quite understood for a while that some letters in the English language, by the way, it's a bear to learn English. It's uh, speaking, I'm a Latin person, right? Close to, Romanian is very close to Latin. And so not, not saying bombers was a difficult thing for me to mean. Or colonel. Where's the R in colonel, you know? Like stuff like that. So, um, but life went on. Some teasing, all in good, in good humor. And uh, life went on. So values matters. Values matters, being able to do something. And, and, and then at the end of the day, there's something called gratitude, right? And gratitude became important because it's important because it's not about you. It's about somebody else. And that really matters. And there's something, there's an inference of reciprocity that if somebody does something to you, you just owe it to do something for somebody else. And I think... Um, that's another piece of, of uh, the lessons that I have learned. And I'm here because of that. I'm here because I, I really care about what happened to me and the unbelievable thing that happened that only in America, only in America could this immigrant and lots of others like me could end up running corporations. Can you imagine me being CEO of a corporation in France or in Germany or in Italy? Are you kidding me? Even today, that wouldn't happen, let alone back then. But that's America, and this is a country of extraordinary opportunity for many of us. And it has to be a country of opportunity for all of us, regardless of who you are, what you look like, what your sexual orientation may be, et cetera, et cetera. And so these things matter, because I can look in the mirror today, Bobby, for sure, and I say, I am the best Peter Georgescu I know I can be. And I wish that for uh, our four granddaughters and uh, 
your, friend, your granddaughters and your children and your future children. And that's what's so important to me. And I learned a lot. And I'm grateful for my background because I am who I am. Because the lessons I've learned make a lot of sense to me and I become the person I am. And I am the best I know what, that I can be. Yes, and you got to live the American dream. I've lived the American dream. Yes. Right? Isn't, yes. That, isn't that what the American yes. dream is, being the best yes. you can be? Uh, and, I lived it. And having worked in a labor camp from you were 10 years old to 15, right? Yeah. And, and then to come as an immigrant and then to be able to get educated in this country and then really have a very different life. So, totally different. So before we get into the books, I'm sure people are very anxious to hear about the book. I have a philosophical question for you. So sure. you call yourself a confirmed capitalist. And capitalism today is a bit under attack and <laughs> under great threat. So do you still embrace this label you've given yourself? Yes, absolutely. I am a committed capitalist. Um, I'm a committed capitalist, and I'll tell you why. It's very simple. Without a doubt, I'll assert that free enterprise capitalism is the single most powerful driver of prosperity and growth that humankind ever created. And I think we can demonstrate that, and I'm, I'm going to do that. But that's why I love free enterprise capitalism. It can produce amazing results, and it can also do very good things. But as I look back um, in modern the modern version of capitalism, and I would say the modern version starts right after the war in 1945, that there were two phases to capitalism. The first phase went from about right after the war, from about 1945 to mid, mid to early 1980s, so almost 40 years. And then there was another phase of capitalism that started mid-80s and went through today. And there are two very different phases. And the difference was the issue of governance. And what I mean by governance is, what do we ask capitalism to do? Who's the beneficiary of this extraordinary prosperity and growth that I talked about? And it turned out that the two phases were very different. The first phase, that, that period from 1945 to mid-'80s, was a, I would describe it as a multi-stakeholder uh, governance where business was really asked to optimize the actual needs and benefits of five critical stakeholders, starting with the customer, because without the customer, nothing good ever happens to a business, and then the uh, workers, the employees, who deliver the products and services to, to the customer, and then, of course, the shareholder that brings the capital to the table, and the corporation itself which increasingly, certainly in the 21st century, you have to, you have to the corporation has to reimagine itself. The, the customers change, the, the consumers um, change indeed, the technology changes, the, the global factors that are uncontrollable about business change. So business has to reimagine itself, reinvent itself constantly. And so it needs the resources, both financial and intellectual, to do that. Otherwise, somebody's going to come along and eat your lunch. And it happens all the time. So they're important stakeholders. And also society. And in those days, society and business uh, agreed to some implicit understanding. Business gave society, excuse me, society, let me put it this way, society gave business a couple of tremendous advantages. The first one was 
uh, limited liability. So nothing that happens to the company affects the investor. And the second was a favorable tax rate versus an individual tax rate. Big advantages to business. In return for which, three things business would do. Pay people fairly, create new jobs, and behave like a good citizen in the community. Like take care of the environment and so forth. So that was the understanding, and it worked pretty darn well. Everybody won. In fact, the greatest market uh, in the world became America's middle class during that period of 40 years. It was amazing. Now, the second phase was very different. And again, free enterprise capitalism uh, did very well. But what it was asked to do, it dropped uh, most of the, in fact, all the other stakeholders except for the shareholder. And so this phase from mid, uh, early 1980s to today was, the mantra was very clear. Every CEO, sound asleep or wide awake, will tell you that my mission is very clear. Maximize short-term shareholder value. Maximize short-term shareholder value. That's it. And so, at the end of the day, uh, this single focus, I would call it shareholder primacy, um, free enterprise captains deliver spectacularly well. So the shareholders and the investors and so forth, about 20 or so percent of America, which is a lot, 20, 25 percent of America would be the largest country in Europe. But it's only 20, 25 percent of America. The rest of America is something else. But we, uh, many of us became quite well off, quite happy, life is as good as it gets, kind of uh, thing. And so it worked well, because that's what free enterprise capitalism was asked to do. That was the governance. But there were unintended consequences, because along the way, we also created another America, in addition to the 25 people who did very well. And life there is really hard. <coughs> really hard. And, and it's, it's an economic issue, it's a social issue, it's a family issues, and with, with really horrible consequences. And now we have this disparity, this inequality that you were talking about has, has been created. And um, one has a feeling that today it's coming quickly to a to a crossroad and a boiling point that we have to resolve. Yeah, and I think that's a good lead-in now to talk about your book. So you published this book in 2017, and I think you've been on what I would call a relentless mission to get the word out about economic inequality in our nation as well as this notion of shareholder primacy and what that is doing to, to drive this imbalance. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that not everyone in the room has read your book, and, and I know you have some slides you want to share just to hit some of the high points and to continue on this conversation of, of the inequality that exists, and I think some of the facts are pretty, pretty shocking. Yes, they are. Uh, you know, what? One, one of the interesting things, and before I get to the, my, my first chart, um, and we can put it back here in a minute, but one thing that uh, I had a challenge as I beginning to write the book was to define what is inequality. And if I were to ask any of you to say, define inequality for me, you will have some difficulty. I surely did. Uh, people would tell me, well, if you make only $30,000 a year, you're in object poverty, or if you make the average about $54,000, uh, 
boy, you're in trouble, or even that $70,000, $80,000 with three kids in school and so forth, you're going to have a hard time making ends meet. So I had to look for something else, and one day I had an epiphany. I, uh, I thought instead of looking at uh, the income per person, that I wanted to see the dynamic inside a home. What's happening in the home? And I had this vision <laughs> that I should look for the kitty. Okay, so what's the kitty? Well, most houses have a metaphorical kitty or an image kitty. I know how much money is going to come in. I know what my expenses are. Gosh, I would really like it that this month, at the end of the month, there would be a couple pennies in this kitty. So I asked a younger economist, and I said, look, we live in the uh, hyper-data world. Can we find this out? Can we, can, can we sort of look for what happens when all the income comes in and a lot goes out? what's left over. And they said, oh, yeah, 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 we can find that out. It's not exactly the way you want it. You got to fish for it. You got to put it together. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics has all the information. So I said, let's go do it. So we took 126 uh, million homes in America. And what we did from that, we took all the income on one side of the ledger, meaning uh, returns from uh, shareholder benefits and options and, and so forth, and salary and wages and bonuses, and at the lower end, so-called transfer benefits, which are unemployment insurance, and the like of benefits uh, from uh, state and local and federal governments. And on the other side, you took away taxes paid and every other expense, and look for the kitty. And what I found in this analysis really, really startled me and shocked me. And I think maybe it will shock you as well. Because what you see is that close to 60% of American homes, let me repeat that, 60% of American homes have to borrow money most months to put food on the table. And then I saw very quickly at the other end, the bars show that 20 or so percent of us are doing just great, thank you. And I was hoping that the upper middle class arithmetically kind of squeezed between the 60% that were really insolvent and the 20 or so percent that are doing very well, this upper middle class will be very vibrant. And at the end of a year, not a month, at the end of a year, this 20% of upper middle class has a disposable income of $8,500. $8,500. So watch out for your car, don't rack it or you, your roof better not leak, or don't ever get sick, or God forbid that you get fired, then you'll be in trouble, serious trouble. And this is what Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stiglitz says. He said, Americans living today, four out of five of them, will experience some form of poverty in their lifetime. Four out of five Americans, in other words, 80%, which is this chart. And you remember Janet Yellen, former Fed chair, a couple of years ago said famously that an unplanned expense of $400 and most Americans can deal with it. Or in New York City, a report came out last year and they said most New Yorkers need the next month paycheck to live on. So however you look at it, it's about 80, 20, 75, 25, something like that. And those are the two Americas. And they're vastly, vastly different. Economically, 
educationally. You remember real estate taxes pays for your schools or most of the school bills. And so they don't pay very much for the teachers. There's no after school programs for the kids. They don't teach arts anymore. And so the dropout rate is horrendous. Very few get to college. We invented kind of an India-style caste system that is very difficult to get out. And this is tragically not only an American problem, but it's a capitalist because we exported our version of free enterprise capitalism to the developed world. The problem for us is that uh, we are the most unequal economically of the older countries in the developed world and also the most immobile society. And I mean by mobility in society, the ability to get from the lowest rung of society to the top rung of society in one generation. So we were the most immobile society and the most unequal society. Measured economically for your economists by Gini coefficient on the income side and the Gatsby curve on the mobility side. So that's where we are today. And of course, 40 some years ago, we're the number one most equal democratic society and the most mobile society in the world. So how did we get there? Well, what happened onto this chart? You see two lines, the red line and the blue line. The red line is the increase in productivity. And if you look at the increase of productivity from, 19, from after the war through about 1982, there really were one line. Because the workers and employees shared in the increases in productivity. Completely so. So the percentage increases were equal. And then about 1982 or so, the governance changed. And that's where the shareholder primacy, maximized short-term shareholder value took place. And you see that productivity keeps going up, innovation keeps going up, profits turbocharge, and you see where employees are. Flat, and they've been flat for 40 years at or below inflation for 40 years. And that's partly what created that inequality that I, that I just talked about. And shareholder primacy problem went on, not only the employees, but also in the basic research, which is the future driver of creating future jobs and expanding new products and, and so forth. And you see that the kind of basic research that happened in America is down and also will contribute to making America less and less competitive. If you look at what happens in, you know, in today's world, just to make it relevant to what we're doing today, AI, we all know that AI, artificial intelligence, it's going to be the future, right? Well, China for the next five years, the government in China has set aside $435 billion to invest in AI. And we leave it to our companies to do that. Now, they, and they all do the same, relatively the same thing, they're competing with each other. The government spends relatively nothing on that. And so, there's a real serious problem then. And so, the, the research and development chart, which is the bread and butter investment that corporations make, is also in serious decline, and has been in serious decline for years, and continues to do that. Now, there are exceptions, of course, because the winners, they're saying the heck with it. And we're going to talk about the fact that there are many winners in America, and not only the technology companies that we know are the best and the biggest in the world, but we also have some people, I'm going to talk later about people like uh, Costco and Home Depot, which is the toughest business you can have, thinnest margins, and my God, they're doing very well. 
not only for other, all the stakeholders, but also for the shareholder. So there are some good things that are going on. But on balance, we're not spending the money to really provide corporations. You see, China spends 10x what we do in R&D, and South Korea about 8x, and um, either Japan and Germany about 2x us, and we are down there with the Brits. So there are problems. So when you really put all this thing together, now let me go back and try to contrast for you what happened during the two 40-year periods, because I gave you a lot of verbiage about what happened and inferences. So let me give you facts now. And what we did is to measure the value increases for three different demographic groups. So actually the values for those people in three demographics. The three demographics are the top 1% of America by income, then the next 9% by income, and then the bottom 9% by income. So those are the three. I'm sharing that not because I picked it that way, but really great data, which is IRS data, comes this way from, uh, I don't want to offend somebody, from Berkeley, Emmanuel Saez, has some, it's a terrific economist, and this is his data, and it's, it's terrific quality data. And you'll see if you look from the bottom, so we have two different phases of 40 years each, and uh, we'll contrast it here. Uh, you see the 45 to 81, let's focus on that, if you were vertical line, you'll see starting from the bottom to the top, the bottom 90% sort of grew about, uh, excuse me, the top 1% the top at the bottom of the chart grew about uh, 30%, the next 9% grew about 100%, and the, top, uh, the bottom 90% grew about 80%. So 80% for the bottom, 90 then 100% uh, for the next 9% of the top 9% and the top 1% about 30%, okay? So everybody kind of won. It's a pretty good report card. In the top 1%, obviously, they started at a higher level, but they still did pretty darn well. If you look now at the current 40-year period, 81 to today, basically 2014, which is the last time they published the data, um, the bottom... Uh, the top 1% at the bottom of the chart grew up close to, if you round it up, to 180%, 180%. The next 9% at 50%, and the bottom 90% lost 3%. So what you're seeing here is an extraordinary wealth transfer, extraordinary wealth transfer for the poor to the rich. And that's um, pretty horrendous. And this is you see, these are numbers, but people live those numbers in reality of daily lives. And this is why we have the problem that we are facing today. And part of the challenge is that this story is not really well known. Um, and uh, it's, 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 it's a shame because if you really understand the problem, then the solution becomes not simple because these are complex problems to solve, but they are solvable and we need to focus on this. But what's clear, what's clear here is that in fact, uh, you know, shareholder or the shareholder primacy of capitalism doesn't work for all Americans. It works for a few people, not enough. So we have to go somewhere else. And, and so we need a version of capitalism that provides 
inclusive growth, inclusive prosperity for all Americans. And we have to get there in a hurry. And what really needs to happen, because the ultimate goal is not equal income for everybody. That's never going to happen. It shouldn't. Because some of us want to work harder, some of us are smarter than others, etc. Whatever. Whatever we choose to do. But the thing that equality that I'm talking about is the quality of opportunity. So every child in America should have and feel that I can be the best that I can be. That the same feeling that I have, that I can be, that I am the best Peter Georgescu that I, that I can be. And all Americans have to, have to feel that way. And we got to get there sooner rather than later. And in addition to business, business must find a way to share more fairly, not wealth transfer. I'm not advocating wealth transfer here. But people, people who work need to share in the incremental value, incremental value of what they produce. And that hasn't happened on average for 40 years. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. The other point that has to happen is we have to change our educational system. It is broken. We have some of the best schools and the best university in the world. And then if you look at competencies that the OACD, the Organization of, of, of uh, Development for, of the Developed World, the 32 countries in the developed world, we rank to, towards the bottom of the developed world in terms of education proficiency for our kids. And that just can't, can't be. We've got to be at the top, not at the bottom of the list. So education eventually has got to come into play from the age of three on. Um, things have got to change. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that data with the group. And I did hear some audibles out there that this is pretty um, eye-opening information. And the book has a lot more data for those of you who like to look at data to help bring some additional context to this this um, inequality that we're experiencing. And I think Peter kind of puts his finger on why we're experiencing that in our daily lives. So Peter, you get to travel in a rarefied circle, given that you've been a chairman and a CEO. And what are some of the conversations you're having? What are the reactions to the book amongst the CEO crowd and investors, how are they responding to some of the things you're saying? Well, um, it's interesting. This is an interesting time, actually, um, because a lot of uh, very promising things have happened. But when I started, the book came out in uh, 2017. And I had a partner. A, um, and I, by serendipity, I picked a former... CEO, chairman, but also a very wealthy guy who started the Home Depot. Ken Langone happens to be his name. And it was an interesting uh, kind of team. He's, uh, 
he's a capitalist on his heart. He wrote a book called I Love Capitalism. And he does. He's a very flamboyant man and a true believer and a true capitalist. And he's, he's an ultra-conservative guy. And, and I'm not a pinko. I'm the really down-the-middle, independent kind of a person. At least that's my definition of who I am. And we made a great team. And we went together to talk to CEOs and say, look, guys, we have a problem here. And we've got, we businesses to help solve it. We help create it. There are other things that created inequality, like technology did that, and globalization did that, and the, 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 the loss of unions, power, and lots of issues. But business probably has contributed the most to this. So we better fix it. Because <laughs> business is the only institution in this country that can produce wealth. Let me tell you. If we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. Government doesn't produce wealth. Business does. Only business can do that. Business, I mean, government, and we'll talk about this in a bit, can do lots of things. But it's up to business. Big business, big corporations, small businesses, and the largest number is this. Private companies and, and, and public companies, all of us have to really uh, sort of band together and, and produce this inclusive growth. This is absolutely critical. And, and by the way, all the CEOs that we talked to basically said, you're right, we got a problem, the problem is urgent, and there's nothing I can do about it. Because if I do something, they're going to come and get me. And they're not wrong about that. The police, what's the police? Uh, you have a bunch of sell-side analysts from banks that yell at you the moment that you miss the quarter by a penny, Boy, they come after you, or you try to do something like, <laughs> uh, you know, give people an unusual raise. American Airlines tried to uh, give a 7% raise to get close to, not where Delta is, but close to where Delta is. And the analysts went berserk. They said, how dare they screw the, the shareholders and this, and it's terrible, and all the rest of it. The stock went down 8% that day that day. And the shareholder, I, there's a group of shareholders, and not many of them, there are about only eight or nine of them. I call them, activists are good. I'm all for activists, shareholder activists. Because sometimes companies fall asleep and you work with them, you help them, you do all kinds of good things. But basically at the end of the day, if you really, you know, if you really are committed to doing something great, you have to watch out because this, almost, I call them terrorist activists, they come in and they say, okay, you, you're doing too many things or too much investment in R&D or whatever, got to cut it all out. So what they do, they come into a company and they, they rip up the cash, they fire a lot of people, um, and then eventually they flip the company and they, they either take it public again or they sell it to a strategic buyer. And now they blackmail CEOs, basically, say, you either increase whatever the profitability level, or we're going to come, you know what we're going to come do. You get fired, and we're going to do what we usually do. So the, the, it's not a lot of fun to be CEO in today's world. It's tough. And don't cry for them. They get paid indecently uh, because the shareholders don't care about It's a form of bribery to get the CEO to do what they're supposed to do. So that's the context of the problem. Now, the obviously exception, and I'll talk about them in a minute. But something happened here, 
um, in August. That's remarkable. Yes, I've been talking to the um, business roundtable for over a year, but these guys really deserve an amazing amount of credit because they talk to lots of people, not just me. And they got a lot of information and so forth. They synthesized it and they came out with renewed, revised principles of doing business. And they said society has got to come into play here. And the society has got to be on the table, the decision-making table, and there are about five different stakeholders here that need to be taken into consideration, including the shareholder. The share, I mean, the corporation has to make money, and the shareholder has to win also, but not the only one. And the amazing thing is that if you do that, what happens is that the shareholders does well uh, as well. And I want to single out for a moment Costco. I mentioned Costco before. It started this guy, Jim Senegal. He's a really cool dude, a very average kind of a guy with a dream and an idea. And he said, you know, if I take care of the customers in a better way, and if I take care of my suppliers, things are going to work out fine. So he went out and took some employees from Walmart in those days and doubled and tripled their salaries and said, take care of my customers, love them. I want you to love them when they come into the store and do the same thing to my suppliers. And since 1983, when he started, Jim Senegal's Costco compounded until a few years ago. I haven't checked in the last year or so, but they compounded north of 16% in terms of return to the shareholders. That's pretty fantastic. 16% for all that period of time. This is the thinnest margin for any business, re discount retailers, it doesn't get tougher than that. And, and, and Home Depot evolved to doing the same kind of things. Let alone, you know, the big, the big technology companies, which pay their people very, very well. I know they don't pay their contract people. They haven't, now they do, but they haven't paid the contract people well. But their employees, they pay well. They think long term. Remember Amazon, didn't make a profit for six or seven years, or hardly any money. But they invested in the future. They build a platform. They build a technology to care about their customers. Customers first. Employees are getting paid a lot of money. They think long term. And they're one of the profitable businesses with the greatest value in the world. The number one company in the world is. And even Walmart now has changed. They started about two, three years ago when they were paying seven and a quarter per hour. And they say, well, okay, we're going to go 11 to $11 in, in four years. And their stock went down dramatically. And then all of a sudden, gee, it's working. Sales are up. People are happier. Things are going well. Gee, maybe there's something here. So I think we're, we're beginning to see some good things beginning to happen. And, and the business roundtable, I want to give these people enormous credit for what they've done. It was a courageous act. And what they did is to open the door for a conversation to say, we've got to change. And they give now permission to have consider, people consider the possibilities of how to do it. Now, this is a longer journey. So now other companies got to come in and say, okay, so now let's be specific. What's a company to do? So I'm now working with some institutions, other institutions, to begin to define more specifically what is the role of the company, what should it be against each of the stakeholders. 
So that's an important thing to do. And we have to have the financial community now. Importantly, those who really manage assets. I'm talking about BlackRock, and I'm talking about State Street, and I'm talking Fidelity, and so forth, and the pension funds. They've got to say, hey, if, if you can demonstrate that you can deliver greater value for everybody, including the shareholder, we're going to support you. And we're going to give you some air cover against this, this police, the current police that are doing damage. So if they guys say, we're going to sell uh, the stock of so-and-so and sell them short, you guys are going to have to buy them long because you believe in them. But there has to be transparency, accountability, and deliver, deliver results. But if you do that, it can happen. And we want media to come on board and say, how about celebrating that people are doing well? Instead, all the bankruptcies and all the horrors, let's celebrate, guys, and go public and tell the good news stories about this so that we all collectively begin to change the culture of what good looks like. And it's not an exception. You're not doing something good for society because you're a good person. No, that's your job, is to make everybody win, including the shareholder, I keep saying. So it is possible. Companies can do it today, are doing it today, and we need to change the, the culture well, I'm glad so that all companies are I'm doing. glad you're spending the time to get uh, the companies that signed up for the Business Roundtable purpose statement to activate that, because I think that's so critical that we just not promise, but we actually try to fulfill that promise. So I'm going to pivot us now. Um, I, I have two more questions for you, Peter. Um, this next one is a, is, is a um, uh, bit of a different question. You mentioned at the very end of your book that you did not look at economic inequality through a racial discrimination lens. And um, share with the audience a little bit about your thinking about why you made that choice and uh, your perspective. Okay, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, yes, it was a, it was a deliberate choice. Uh, obviously, the, everybody was included in my data and my research. I didn't single out and talk about uh, specifically, uh, specifically the African-American issue. And I took my cue from... Um, a very conservative economist called Charles Murray, who wrote a book in uh, 2012 called Falling Apart. And he, did not, he didn't go there and talk about the specific problem of the African-American community. And by the way, they are obviously, as we know, the most disadvantaged as a group. And, and I, I, I tell the story at the end of the, of the book as to why I didn't do it, because... Too often, the problem in America today is so huge that it's not just about um, one group. And too often, people are saying, and influentials and government people, and those who don't want this to, 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 to acknowledge that this is a broad problem in America, they say, oh, this is just another excuse to worry about uh, the black America. And I didn't want that to happen. And so I didn't single them out, but it's, it's really a problem because even among the other America, they are, in most cases, uh, at the bottom of the other America. And I work for a large hospital in New York. I'm vice chair of a large hospital uh, in my spare time when I don't worry about inequality. <laughs> and one of the things that I know is that 
the mortality rates, let's say, for African-American women contrasted with um, white women is about 10 years. And it's not, there's nothing to do with uh, genetics, it's nothing to do with anything other than the social impact of what it is to be a black person in America today, or not just a black person, a brown person, whatever. The bigotry, unfortunately, today is as high as it was probably at the time when, when uh, the civil rights movement was in effect. And so we've got to really recognize and go after it. And one of the most important issues that I believe that has to happen is, again, education. Every single child has got to have access to cognitive development from the age of three. We all know that that's what works. And if we want a dem truly democratic society, all children have to have the support and a quality education, because that's the only way you can drive to equal opportunity in America, and that's the ultimate game. Anyway, I'm not even, I'm explaining, rather than defending my position, that's what I chose to do. Thank you, Peter. And I see Elizabeth has moved to the back of the room. So uh, audience, this is your cue to start thinking about the questions you might want to ask Peter. So Peter, I have one last question for you. What message do you have for this audience here, an audience that has either chosen a career at the intersection of business and society or has an interest in that intersection? What message do you have for them? Yeah. Given the time, I'm just going to Forget the fact that you know that we need to have inclusive prosperity and that right version of free enterprise capitalism. But for all of us, I think I want to go back to where we started in terms of what did I learn. I learned that values matter. And values are important. And at the end of the day, I'll tell you what. Each one of us has a major job to do. And in this country, we have to all become better people. We have to be more thoughtful, more kind, more compassionate. We're not going to, we're not going to make the progress. Because if, if it is not us, the people we send to Washington are not going to be those people. We're going to continue tribalism and warfare and divisiveness and hatred and racism and bigotry. And so we, we each one and all of us must to start trying to be better people, kinder, better people. Because at the end of the day, I would say that my generation has not done a great job leaving behind a better world than we inherited. And so our job is not over. And I'm thinking about my, you know, the poster children are those four grandkids of mine, but they're not just, they just stand in for all the kids and the future generations. And can, do, can we do anything other than trying to give them a better start, a better life, a better opportunity? And I think that's all of our jobs. Thank you, Peter. So, Elizabeth, I'm going to I want to remind our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio that we're listening to Peter Georgescu in conversation with Bobby Silton with us today on the subject of Capitalism Reconsidered. What business can do to lead the change? Our first question. Um, but th thank you very much for your courage. Uh, on page um, 111, you actually write, what are the barriers 
to making these changes. And then you list them. Arrogance, ignorance, <laughs> greed, lack of courage, and sometimes despair and capitulation. And then you basically claim that some of the leaders are actually waiting until the, the, the system falls apart. It reminds me of, you're talking about 50 years ago, but actually Barry Commoner, the professor at Washington University, then in the 60s and the 70s, really projecting this in several books. And, and the book that I'm more familiar with is Careless Technology. So, so why is it that the system is not really listening to scholars, to analysts like you? What is the problem? What you're still saying that capitalism has a solution to it, and, and, and you know, why? Well, as I said, I think, once again, it comes down to people and our attitudes. The problem is horrific, and I spend most of our time today talking about the problem, importantly about the problem. Capitalists can work if we give it the right opportunities and ask it to do the right things for society. So we, can, we know we can fix the problem, but I think it's an issue, we, I come back then to say, it's all about people, and it's about people, and it's about education, and caring, we have, to, we have to walk and chew gum. Business has got to play their role. Government, I, we didn't talk a lot about government yet, but government has to come into play here and help out. I'll give an example um, about a, a different form of, of uh, tax policy, for example. We want not just a broad uh, 40%, you have a 40% tax um, that we're going to give to people. I think there should be a quid pro quo very specifically that. Business, if you invest in your businesses some more and invest in basic research some more, we can give you a tax break. And we can give you, if you increase your uh, employees' compensation out of the value, incre incremental value that they produce, we can help you there too. So the combination, we got to have everybody work together now. We need to train people. We need to retrain people. Because technology is going to put people out of business for sure. But we can train. Now we have close to 7 million, it's been estimated, 7 million jobs in, high, in um, hyperspace that just go unfilled because we don't have the, 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 the educated workforce to take care of that. We don't have training, uh, training schools, trade schools in this country. If you look at other societies, there's plenty of trade schools. We don't have enough. In South Florida, business can grow twice as fast in the construction business, but you can't do that because there's not enough electricians and carpenters and welders and the rest of it. So we have to think about as a society, how do we, not everybody needs to go to school for four years of college or seven years of uh, high school, uh, higher education. There, there are other ways you can make a very good living, and people need to work. I'm not for giving people a universal uh, life um, scholarship. 
I'm not for that at all. People need to work. People need to develop their skills and raise their self-esteem and become better, more qualified people and keep learning for the rest of their lives. But we need a partnership between a government that really cares about developing all of us, and that's how we're going to get there. But again, we need to be better people. We need to have the courage to become better people and, and practice it. Not only dream it, but practice it. Um, you yes, ref- fair lady. You referred to the business roundtable. Could you tell us what that is, what it involves, and why it was so important that yes. you accomplished what you did? Thank you. That's my wife, by the way. <laughs> um, and she's, she's right to scold me on that. The business roundtable uh, is, I would say, uh, arguably the most prestigious business organization in America today. It's 100 and 90, about 190 of the largest corporations in America belong to it. And they've been, over the, most of the 40 years, the strongest defenders of shareholder primacy that you can imagine. And everybody you can think of as a corporation belongs there. And 170 CEOs representing 170 or 190 companies sign on for the new principles. And that's why it's so important that the leading corporations in America went on record to say, we, it's time for us to change. And I, I take my hat off to them and say, fantastic job. It was a very courageous act. And uh, they are very important. Uh, and, and that's why they can't be dismissed casually as a Peter Georgescu or XYZ or a professor or a book. No, these are 170 CEOs who said, enough, it's time to change. That's a big deal. Um, I'd, I'd love to follow up on that as a tech founder, entrepreneur. Um, I've sat on a lot of future of work commissions in the last few years. And I'm delighted that you were able to um, be part of the people who encourage the business roundtable. But I'm a little concerned about how we help and send them further. I think that um, although I would love to see the financial institutions support it, even though they know that having multiple women on boards get a better return, they haven't supported that. So I'm a little mm, wary of their support. And I wonder if a reinvigorated labor movement or a new kind of activist movement to support these CEOs would be uh, able to bear more fruit. And what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it takes a village. You know, it takes a lot of different people to come to the party. And right now, I think uh, I'm working with one uh, such organization. It's called uh, Just Capital. And they're, in fact, right now, it's a 40-year-old not-for-profit that ranks the Russell 1000 company. That's an index, the Russell 1000. And we take the top 1000 corporation. I'm a director of that, to be transparent. And we measure their justness. The justness not from us or, or uh, academics, but from what American people are saying. And they're all saying the, the right thing. Pay their people well, take care of this, gender equality, benefits, um, the environment, quality products, and so forth. And so we measure people. And this is an opportunity for, for organizations like mine, like, uh, like Just Capital, to go out and begin to go deeper into what does it mean, what is the governance, both more specific governance than the, the, the roundtable has done, but they started the conversation. Now it's up to us and others to come forth and do that. 
So I'm looking forward, and I think it's essential, not just for uh, Just Capital, by other organizations and activists to come out and support it. And I think that is absolutely an essential part, and I think we need to do this pretty quickly to take advantage of the momentum that the Business Roundtable principle restatement has, has made. And so I think uh, the time is now to do it, so we're working very hard to try to do that. So thank you. Very good point. We need to do that. Unfortunately, we've come to the point in our program where we only have time for three more questions <laughs> as long as you keep them short and remember to ask a question. Okay. Yeah, I started my career as a consultant in 81, so I saw the, the tail end of the 40 years and the beginning of the next, uh, the last 40 years. So, And I've had one horrible experience of being on a Tuesday analyst call with a client, and I've never seen anything like that in my life. So my question comes down to, you know, every, all the, those 170 CEOs want access to the capital markets. What do you know is being done in terms of swaying you know, the the tail that's been wagging the dog for the last uh, 20 years, they're a very powerful force in the in the world. So what do you know of what's being done there, other than with the Russell 1000, which is, sounds like great work? Yeah. Well, we're, there's a lot that is going on. If you, if you take a look at uh, Larry Fink, for example, for the last ten, uh, two years, Larry Fink is chairman of the largest, um, if you will, equity holding company in the world, about 13 and a half excuse me, seven and a half trillion dollars uh, in assets. And so they have some clout. They have, uh, they have the capability of doing. I, w I was adding, if you add on that uh, uh, Vanguard and State Street, then you get to about 13 trillion dollars in total. Um, we've had conversations with all of them in separately. Uh, I think we can have them together, um, and we intend to do that, to have conversations with them to say, Larry Fink has gone on record saying that, and now he's got to press his own organization to make it happen. And it's, it's, it's a journey. It's, it's hard work, and we have to get there. And uh, as I mentioned before, we have to get them to the table. The equity folks have got to come to the table, and I think they will. I'm, I'm optimistic that they will do so. And I think lots of other activists, their foundation people, Larry... Uh, Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation, for example, is a pioneer in this area, and it's doing it. Other, other, other foundations are working very hard. So uh, there's, a, there's a push and a concerted effort to say, we all are now understand the problem. It's now time to act. So I think I'm optimistic. Thank you. Um, this question is both granular and hypothetical. Let's say if I were a firm that agrees with this, and I think emotionally everybody in the room and probably most CEOs understand that this is real, but to embark on this, and I retain a firm to help brand that to all the stakeholders, for instance, Young and Rubicam, a firm that you may have had some experiences, what would the brainstorming be to change course so that you neither alienate and frighten the shareholders but also reach out to the other stakeholders who are feeling lost and, frankly, feeling very anxious. Any thoughts on the methodology? What, what would be some things that a company can do to start re, 
branding its culture rather than just you know hypothetical fluff? Yeah, uh, it's not. None of this can be hypothetical fluff. It's got to be very specific. So the next step are, to, in my mind, are quite clear. We have to, at, at a macro level, begin to define. Again, it's all about. Remember, I used the word governance. It's critical. We have to make the governance specific. And I want to. Uh, and I, I gave you an example of that when I was talking about the importance of of reimagining the relationship between a corporation and its people. People right now are looked upon employees as a cost, and most of two thirds of American employees are disengaged from their business. And some of them, about uh, close to 20%, are actually working against the interests of the corporation. They're so upset, which is kind of stupid from a business perspective. Because in the 21st century, it's not capital that's going to drive the business; it's innovation and increased in productivity. If you don't do that, you die. And so. That's the kinds of things we have to do. So businesses have got to motivate people, have got to reward people, have got to do everything they can to get these these employees because they are the only people who can drive innovation and productivity increases. So it's in the interest of business to do that. So those are the kinds of activities and the kind of governances that that the boards of directors and management needs to begin to put into play. Not to, as I say, this is not a game of wealth redistribution. This is creating systemic solutions that can endure over time. And that's what society needs. An example of that can also be applied to how you do, deal with uh, and the return that you get in the environment and all the other area. So we have to be very specific, very granular at a macro level, and then the boards of directors have got to deal with the specificity of a business in their industry and that their state of development, all the rest of it, and be very specific with goals and educate the financial community of what we're going to do, be very transparent, and then change the culture, overall culture, which is to say, I'm going to, I'm going to play smart. It's not about, this is not about social responsibility. This is importantly smart business because it works. Great questions. Last question. Here we go. So I just wanted to ask, you mentioned about, um, you know, getting government involved. And, you know, it sounded uh, as, as if, um, you know, giving incentives for, you know, a, I took them as tax breaks for specific items that the company does. But... What's your solution to getting those government entities to have the willpower to Im uh -huh. implement that? Because uh -huh. that's clearly not being done from the government level. Right. You know, that's up to, that's up to you, actually, and me, and all of us. We have to decide who the hell we send to Washington. What do we want them to do? You know? I mean, let's look in the mirror, guys. <laughs> Who else can do it? I mean, those people work for us. So let's, let's, let's not abdicate that role and responsibility. If you want people who care, people who want to do some good, then send some people up there who can do good. If that's what you ask them to do, fine. If you want to have some tribal warfare, some more, so we can do battle again for the next four years or eight years or 20 years, don't send me to Canada, will you, please? <laughs> Just okay. <laughs> Good. 
Well, I want to thank Peter Georgescu and Bobby Silton for these comments here today and to uh, the audience here in the club, as well as the radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming.